Hey, welcome back. It's the 88th episode of the OpFat Cast. And, you know, if Dumpuary is our favorite time of year, then maybe this is our least favorite time of year. And that's where we have to wade through the muck that was the previous year of cinema to discuss Oscar nominations because it's the content that the fans are crying out for day and night. <sighs> so, that being said, I got Jake Trapila with me. Hey, good morning, Steve. Oh, good good morning. It sure sure is. Sure is. Uh Jack's here. Yeah, just about. Oh my god. Are you uh, are you upset that Ireland wasn't represented in the uh best foreign picture category? Well, you can, we've got Sarah Sharonan. Come on. Yeah, no, we're true. we're winning every and Florence Pugh is honorary Irish. We're stealing her back because Brits keep stealing Irish people. So yeah. No, we're we're doing pretty well this year. Oh, yeah, that's oh a good actually, point. You, know, you know what? Something that Irish people are actually losing their shit over. Um, apparently, apparently the uh, o- Oscar orchestra leader is Irish. Oh, hell this yeah. This year, the first Irish orchestra leader for the Oscars ever that is Irish. Mm-hmm. And Irish people know that. I've ne- I know nothing about anyone who's ever led an orchestra in the Oscars. But now, got and, one. And that man is Mark Wahlberg. Also <laughs> joining us today... <laughs> <laughs> we got that Adam Ireland with is us. Mark Wahlberg. Gonna, there would have been a lot of blood in in the Oscars. <laughs> I think I was introduced here, but uh, you know, it's all good. Uh hey Steve. Hey man, did you know cool. they're opening a Wahlburgers in Milwaukee? Well, that's thrilling. Uh <laughs> I can't wait to go. Uh can we not do this next year? Let's just call it call it a day. Call it a day. We're, We're just done. done. Let's just do Golden Globes instead. It's more my speed. Uh, <laughs> Sean's here with us as well. Hello. They should do uh, Wawa burgers because then you got two in one. Are you, are you talking about the chain of gas stations in like Virginia? Yeah. Uh, mixed with the burger joint. To, I mean, is, pretty isn't good. Wawa a convenience store in Philadelphia? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's in Pennsylvania. I guess like just like generally. It's in that like, area. There's ish. Yeah. They're in like 14 different states, but um, uh, I know because I think that they just had a data breach. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, they should do that. You know, it's like you go to a, a rest stop and gas station or whatever, and then it's connected. You got a Wendy's or something. It's just that, but it's yeah. all one. Get yourself, get yourself a little gas station meat. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's just jump right into this. We got a lot of ground to cover. We're actually we're splitting this into two episodes because we uh, we don't want to kill our audience as we have done in in prior years. And uh, the other thing that we're doing this year, which we've been trying to stick to this to kind of uh, exercise brevity and also not destroy our own souls, we're only doing best picture. If other shit comes up, that's great. But we just need to stay focused here because otherwise, I, I just I'm gonna lose my mind. I already watched Bombshell. I can't I can't fucking deal after that. Like actually watching Bombshell, even though I didn't need to, I think that was the the thing that really kind of pushed me over to the edge and and made me realize that we're doing the right thing by only covering Best Picture. Uh, anyways, let's start off with a movie from the writer and the director of the upcoming Barbie movie. Uh, better known as Get Rich or Die a Spinster, 
Gentlemen, 2019's <laughs> Little Women is first on the on the chopping block. <laughs> this is interesting because I had zero expectations for this. And after the movies, the, the five movies that we selected for this week's episode, this one somehow made a lot of the other shit that I had to watch in rapid succession feel much more palatable. I, I genuinely enjoyed this and thought it was fun and breezy, which is not something that I was expecting at all. Yeah, it's it's um, it's really good. I would see it a couple times, um, mainly just to sort of uh, get a better grasp on what Gerwig was doing with the structure, which I think is is great and really refreshing. Um, yeah, I don't know what what else did or what did the rest I of mean, you guys think? My my big takeaway from it was. You know, this is Little Women's been done probably four or five times before. Mm-hmm. It's obviously like a classic book that I think most people read in like middle school, probably. At least that's right. I read it for the first time. Uh, and so you're, you're used to these characters and you're used to the structure of the story. And because uh, Gerwig has this kind of nonlinear structure to it where she kind of jumps between uh, the past and, and, and the present and, and whatnot makes it a lot more interesting like by kind of like recontextualizing the story in that way it it made the story feel fresh again for me and it also does something that I think all of the other adaptations of Little Women suffer from which is the first part of the book is much better than the second part of the book it's I I don't know the history of its publication but it reeks of she wrote the first part and then was just like, oh shit, this was more successful than I thought it would be, and then wrote the second part afterwards. So all the parts where you're getting to uh, know the girls and their lives and and all that, like that's the interesting, compelling part. And then as they start to grow older, that's where it's just like, okay, now I don't really give a shit anymore. And it's also a book where I think a lot of people had issues with the ending, just because yeah. it, it ties everything up in a neat little bow. And the movie actually goes out of its way by introducing the author as a character here and making it sort of uh, biographical in a way. It it, it sort of deals with the ending her, and why the ending's kind of bullshit. She can, yeah, she can kind of like have her cake and eat it too. She does like that. That's yeah. Besides the structure, that's the big thing that she does. Is um, that was part of the of the uh, production history of the book? Is that she had to. Uh, marry her protagonist and she didn't want to so in this she kind of gets to pull back and say um, she's writing that compromise this character's writing that compromise but the character doesn't need to anymore um, mm-hmm. yeah and but yeah the structure is great like it, she does this color coding um, between time periods so that you you know can get a good grasp on uh, where you're at in case you're not familiar with all these things but also it kind of undercuts um, you know uh, some of the tension later like you know you it starts and you know um some of the like i think one of the first scenes is is um hearing that joe says no to Lori, and so when that big climactic scene comes later um it's not about the like what's going to happen um it's more about like at least for me like thinking about why this is happening the, why the way it's happening. And how we're getting there. Yeah, yeah exactly. so it's kind of like watching exactly. it the second time, the first time through in a way. Yeah. Uh, guy, here's a question for you. Did, is anyone, any of you guys not read the book before or 
maybe watched prior adaptations of this because that's the one thing that kind of stuck in my head is because I was familiar with the source material and other adaptations of Little Women, I was just like, okay, this is this is easier for me to follow. I, at least I thought so. I didn't I didn't have any issues with the structure, but coming from the standpoint of not being familiar with the with the source material, did any of you guys have issues with it? I've never I've never read the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't really on the curriculum for me, but um, yeah, I've I've seen the other movie adaptations, um, and so there is a there is kind of interesting that there's. Um, I had the same thought, which is how easy is this to follow if you don't know the previous versions? Um, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure because it felt very natural to me. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've watched the previous versions, but I think I've, I've maybe watched Gillian Armstrong's 94 version like maybe twice and then watched the other versions once a piece. So it's not like I grew up with this story and I'm like intimately familiar with it, but I didn't have struggle remembering who's who and what happens and which one dies because one of them dies every time. Uh, but um, <laughs> they didn't change that. No, no relief. That's the only but thing yeah, that Gerwig does is she kills them all, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> that was a brave decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they all join the Confederate army and get blasted to shit at the ba Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> no one's not coming. Yeah, one of them is Ulysses S. Grant is an imaginary friend. Yeah. It's it's a big thing. I'm in a uh, I'm in a similar boat as Jack. I had I've actually only seen the uh, 1994 version with Winona, so it took me a bit to get adjusted to the structure of this new one because it it really does flip back and forth for the, throughout the whole film. But I overall it is a very compared to the other movies we had to watch for this it is a, it's a very pleasant movie and everyone is just. All the performances is just so great. Like Chris Cooper is oh, uh, only in it for a few minutes, but he's fantastic. And the, the real revelation for me is Florence Pugh, because I hated Midsummer, and I thought that was all real, she could really do is just this mopey girlfriend. But she really breathes life into the Amy character and is just fun to watch. And um, mm -hmm. I think Gerwig it did a really good job of like tapping into that actress's potential um, with this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Florence Pugh is exceptional. Uh, I, I did not like Midsummer at all, but I thought that her performance, like she was doing everything she could do with that character, and she was kind of the only little blip of positivity that I could find in Midsummer. But yeah, you're right. She's she's so good, and really everyone is is exceptional in this, and it's the structure is interesting. I, I it's mean, so well directed too. I I, I think. Um uh what's her name emma, emma watson um yeah i have trouble with her performance in it a little bit it's it's certainly not like the, the thing that i think about when i think about this movie but when i watched it uh the after the first time i was like i remember like um i think it was maybe jake was like asking about what i thought about the performances and i was saying like oh i like this this and this and i was like oh i kind of forgot that emma watson was in it and then the second time i was kind of trying to pay more attention but like uh i think her her uh accent is um not great in this and which is weird because she's she does a good valley accent and bling ring but here it seems like she can't avoid like the long vowels of um uh she's british is that right um, yeah yeah not a not a single one of the little women yeah, is American. yeah which i love like I, I love that, strange that quality that, that happened. Mm -hmm. but yeah it seems like she has trouble uh, avoiding some of that stuff but also like more than that she just doesn't register as much and maybe that's um maybe that's because Gerwig doesn't dwell on her uh arc as much um although I think that arc is is really evocative at times like when she's 
got a um you know this fabric problems and talking to her husband all about money like the money issue stuff with them is really interesting um and before i shut up about this movie the other thing that i wanted to mention is um laura dern uh, i really like um one of the scenes that stuck out to me is when she's talking to Saoirse Ronan's character, Joe, and um, uh, she's talking about how she's angry all the time and she has to like work on not being angry. Um, I found that was really touching. Like Even though we don't get to see Laura Dern ever get angry in this movie, um, and I thought maybe that was a bit of brilliant casting on Gerwig's part because we, we know we have a history with Laura Dern as being angry in a lot of stuff um yeah like inland empire and like even big little lies but like you know like we have seen that side of this actor before and yeah so uh it's just something that i took away with it yeah i think an interesting thing about this one is it's funny because our whole intro is like oh we had to watch oscar nominees and they all sucked and we weren't lying about a lot of them sucking but it's funny to start off with little women which i think honestly this like to me this is almost it's it's a quietly excellent film Mm -hmm. like it's kind of like it's so naturalistically designed and intuitively structured that you don't i know there was a thing that was going around on twitter where some some idiot was talking about how women directors you know do things effortlessly and no one notices (laughs) it and and it's like it's stupid because gerwig clearly there's an authorial stamp on this and all of that but it is it the the film is so assured and effortless that you kind of and the and the performance are uniformly you know really really strong that you kind of yeah it's sort of like you just get washed away by it you you don't really have time to sit back and go this is good yeah um, and i do and i genuinely suspect i think this of all of the best picture nominees honestly this film may well prove to have the longest shelf life i think the the only issue this film has is that the 94 version is i think also kind of exemplary of the form and they complement each other they they distinguish each other in terms of their form um, but, you, you know, I'm just kind of hoping that, you know, I, I think there, certainly there'll be room for both versions on my shelf. Like, I think that's oh, yeah. definitely, you know, kind of they they were like that. I, I don't know if a new generation will pick up this one and run with it because the 94 one just seemed to be kind of a touch point for people of kind of our age, particularly for women of our age uh, who, you know, really grew up with that movie. And it was just like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, wow, it's an amazing film about women. Um, there weren't a lot of those in the 90s that kind of had big mainstream appeal and so yeah Yeah. it's it's kind of funny to start with this film because i think honestly i was joking earlier about how you know has anyone even mentioned green book since it won last year like like these so many of these oscar winners just disappear shape of water as soon like you know shape of water like who cares like literally unless you are setting questions for a pub quiz you know that's the only time these movies ever come up that's the only time and no one cares about them anymore they just disappear Um, and I really I I hope and I don't think this one will disappear you know and and even good films kind of you know can sometimes lose their shine over time they're not relevant like Parasite which we'll get to is maybe a film that I think might be of right now a little bit I don't know how it will weather it's a little Mm. hard to say but I really do think that this is a film that 10, 15, 20 years down the road, I think people could still really fondly recall. And um, that's, you know, I think that's a remarkable 
uh, element to it. And I still also think it's, it's amazing that Kerwig didn't get a director nomination yeah. for this. But anyhow, I mean, that's the... Like, this film is... Like, considering the people who did and the people who's going to win, uh, hint, hint, it's Sam uh, Mendes. Uh, it's like... <laughs> Ah, uh, how did that happen? But I guess she, uh, Joker, she had cuts in her film. <laughs> Myros, you've been awfully quiet on this. Well, you know, it's hard to get a word in edgewise. Uh, <laughs> what I would say is, you know, I am a big, big slab of, of man, and I have never made any time for anything called little women in my entire damn life. So, no, I'm not familiar with the, the material. So I, I did not have much trouble following it. I think if I had any critique of the format is that it, it very much becomes uh joe's story it, yeah, it's not for sure it's not so much little women uh, you know I, I you don't get that great of a sense of of emma watson's character or or uh eliza scanlon's um other than you know it's just like well they're all gifted artists it's a house full of special people and uh you know it, it might not ring true to life a lot of times but it's not meant to it's it's this sort of warm piece of escapist cinema of the sort that you don't really encounter that much these days uh and that was wonderful to live in for a couple hours i i thought it was just a nice beautiful film and uh that last 15 minutes yeah. you kind of were pulled out yeah yeah i could have just uh, <laughs> lopped off 15 that would have been perfect but <laughs> No, I the ensemble, amazing. Uh, I'm I'm really just disappointed that uh, Meryl Streep didn't get nominated. <laughs> I mean, Chris Cooper could have. Uh, for my oh mind. yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. I think he's he might be my favorite performance in the film. Although Saoirse Ronan's amazing, yeah. and Chalamet is also fantastic. I agree. Chalamet's crazy. Chalamet's like the Rick and Morty of actors right now for me because uh, I've seen him only a few times and it's been actually you know pretty good. Uh, this and Call Me by Your Name, like these these are pretty solid performances. But his fans seem to be insufferable. Uh, so <laughs> oh. I don't and I don't understand the disconnect there. Um, Maybe because you're not a I, teen. Maybe. Also, I'm not sure that a lot of the Timothy Chalamet love that I see online may have some foot in irony. I'm hoping <laughs> a little know. bit. Um, if it were just horniness, that I'd like, fine, cool, whatever. But there, there's, I don't know. It just goes. It's a little overboard sometimes. There were people opining that he didn't like. He hasn't won an Oscar yet. He's like <laughs> what? He's like he's twelve. <laughs> Give him a little bit of time. Like, but anyhow, not enough Oscar voters saw Hot Summer Nights. What what is the deal with Bob Odenkirk being? Oh, in this that's the only part that I didn't like. Oh, really? Uh, honestly, yeah. like Odenkirk was so weird. For it, it, it honestly, like when he came on screen, it, it immediately took me out of the movie because he looks ridiculous with like these glued-on <laughs> mutton chops. And then he he just walks in the door, and the girls are like, "Father!" and they run over to him, and he's like, "Oh, my little girls are little women." <laughs> like, I I, you know, I liked what the it. Fuck, dude. He has this funny line read later that um, Sophie and I were just like cracking up about where they're at dinner and they're talking to Professor Barr about like when he stops by and he's going to uh, the West Coast and um, Bob Odenkirk's like, I'd like to go sometime. And his and Laura Dern's like, you can't go. What are you talking about? He's like, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> It's it just, is. It's it, a weird casting choice, and it, like it, 
and I knew about it beforehand, so it, it's strange yeah. it didn't hit me fresh. But um, yeah, it's it kind of reminds me of, like Takeshi Kitano in Merry <laughs> Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. That like Takeshi Kitano, of course, is known in Japan as like an incredible comedian. That was what oh, he was yeah. known as. And he went, he used to, he snuck into a screening of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which if you've not seen it, is not a comedy. And uh, he snuck into a screening of it. And every time he would appear on screen, the audience would just start laughing. Yeah, I- and it really you know disappointed mm. and upset him but that was you know his his vision as a comedy and it's it's a similar thing that bob odenkirk is like he's clearly i mean he can act i and i i don't think there's a problem with his performance but he is bob odenkirk i'm just expecting something funny to happen something <laughs> yeah. different to happen it's uh, yeah i don't it's i i guess that's it that's our fault our problem in one sense I, but maybe I, uh, yeah i agree with yeah. jack i think takashi kitano should have played the father in little women <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a much sterner household that's for sure yeah. although right. with a lot more a lot more foam inserts and people like being falling over and stuff based on his classic tv skit shows um man that could be the next version roll on like take number six of little women where they all have to like just avoid things rolling down hills at them yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know yeah but aside from the odenkirk nitpick i it's hard to find a lot of faults in this it's just it's really understated and just really well made really well acted it's it's pretty damn good across the board so you know if you're trying to be selective about which oscar noms you you watch uh, this is one i would highly recommend and it's the kind of movie too where it warrants rewatches, which is not something I can really say about any other adaptation of Little Women. So, it's uh, it's pretty solid. But hey, let's uh, let's move on into something maybe not not so solid. It's it, I don't know. A lot of people have been saying over the years you shouldn't you shouldn't adapt video games. There's nothing. There's really nothing there for you. It never works out. Uh, but Sam Mendes, being the brave director that he is, decided that he would adapt uh, Electronic Arts Battlefield 1 into a feature-length film. Uh, people are calling it Birdman with Bayonets, uh, the Russian arc of forgettable Sam Mendes war movies. Uh, and really the question on all of our minds is, Sean, is war hell or is war a hell of a technical achievement? <laughs> as, as, I, as I wrote in my review, editing is hell. Um, uh, it's what a weird phenomenon this movie has taken up in our uh, cult, pop cultural consciousness for that again will like last only as like a blip like who wants to who wants to revisit this like even if you're just like gung ho for this thing which is just like you know it's like a Jerry made by Steven Spielberg um but like a bad even worse version of steven spielberg like not not that i don't dislike steven spielberg movies but uh one thing we can one thing we can determine is that father's day gifts have been sealed up for between this and another film we'll get to father's day gifts have been sealed up for the next year my my (laughs) i stopped uh giving my parents like movies for christmas like years ago because whenever like me or my siblings did they just they're like oh this is great and sometimes they would even be asking for these things and then i just stay in the shrink wrap and it's like that that's exactly what's going to happen with 1917 like you got to maintain the collector's value yeah yeah no. 1917 on DVD. either that either that or like the idea of watching this again is just like who, who like the most unappealing way to spend two hours yeah and you know this is so it's it's 
obviously the gimmick is it's shot in a way to look like there's there's no cuts. It's just like a straight straight shot through one night with these soldiers as they try desperately to deliver a message to the front line and and, and whatnot. But it's ama- It's so poorly paced. Like the gimmick is dragging this movie down. Like it it would be. A, it would definitely still be in the category of not for fucking me, that's for sure. But the whole conceit, this gimmick, it, it doesn't do anything for the movie. It's not doing it any fucking favors. Yeah, I think and that's it just the comes question. off as show offy. Like I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> that's the question. I don't know. Has Sam Mendes ever gone on record explaining like what a one shot aesthetic does for this? Like why that was necessary? What what like there's no underlying point and it becomes very clear like for me watching the film, particularly towards the end of it, that like the tail starts wagging the dog. That everything on the it like everything on screen is happening to in to incorporate the one shot right. aesthetic rather than the one shot aesthetic capturing what needed to happen on the film in the film. Um like it just it just turns into a bunch of just once, running tracking shots. Once you get like the rhythm that I think you were kind of alluding to, Steve, like once you understand the rhythm of the of it, which is like uh from set piece to set piece, like you it, like it just becomes so transparent like what you're watching and it just becomes like uh, you know, beats instead of like an actual emotionally and Evolving experience. It is. I would mm. say the first the first twenty minutes of it, I actually kind of liked. Um, and the first twenty oh, minutes, but it's really the, the yeah no no the first twenty minutes. I think is it's this is where the the only point of the film that registers with any kind of interest, and that's because the first twenty minutes quite successfully and using the one shot aesthetic quite successfully charts the kind of labyrinthine claustrophobic sprawling nature mm. of the trenches, the geography of these trenches, these just the asinine stupidity of a war where they just dug miles and miles and miles of holes in the ground and then lived in them for months in utter depravity um, mm-hmm. over you know and, and you know I, I thought that the the that part of the film is actually quite interesting you know and I would say you know this is a pretty evocative vision of, uh, of kind of the the insanity of World War One, but then subsequently, and we've, we complained about this with Dunkirk when we talked about that, whenever that came out, I don't remember, uh, it's pretty much just disappeared from my memory otherwise but um, it, other than that like the film is, I just don't understand the concept behind it, because again, it's a depoliticized war film, there's no real discussion of World War One in any context outside of what's in front of the eyeballs of some random guy on the battlefield um, there's no idea of why any of this is happening or inference and sure you know, it, it kind of it draws it into then what is a war film and the war film becomes in, in this case again it's spectacle and it's kind of ever present violence and it's scary and it's terrible um, which is all stuff that I think we all already knew about war um, huh? but it can't grasp anything else so it, you know and it just turns into effectively a genre film and you know war is a genre and war is a spectacle and war is kind of exciting it's kind of thrilling kind of cool because I mean I know I'm not going to die there <laughs> like when the when the plane rolls up I'm like this this like that shot should have been in 3D that literally that scene where the, the plane crashes at one point and disappears from view as it goes down and then suddenly it comes hurtling up over the hill and rolling straight towards him because of I course hated that it does. so much that is it is terrible and like honestly it looks like it should have been out of like that 3D Friday the 13th like it's such a nakedly cynical special effects shot plus you it's know, try- again it's like uh, you know so that's the thing about the beats thing like 
you're there and you go, okay, they don't like this house, but they go through it and that's fine. And you go, okay, well, they're at this set piece now. Something's going to happen. So as soon as you see the plane, you go, okay, something's yeah. going to happen with the plane. So when it goes out of view, you go, all right, now yep. it's going to come back up. Yep. It's, no, no, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, it just, it's, I, uh, at the risk of getting canceled, I'm just going to say, I think this is the worst picture to be nominated for best picture this year. Um, more, more on that in our next episode discussion, but, um, why don't you support the troops, Jake? Listen, if I was that soldier <laughs> in World War said One, to me. I would have, listen, if that was me in that war, I would have let that fucking German soldier burn to death in his plane, let me tell you. But, yeah, same. Um, it, it's, it's very much, it's a very much a monotonous viewing experience, helped in no part by the one take, because it's like you said it's just a film of it's every 15 minutes there has to be an event they walk through a german bunker oh no it's collapsing we got to get out of here they go they walk in a field it's quiet 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 then the plane crashes oh no we got to avoid this plane and then they go on a truck and then the truck gets stuck all right we got to get out and push the truck um it's i didn't like i thought the leads the two leads were blanks and I was actively rooting for their demise, and I was kind of happy that my <laughs> wish was partially fulfilled. Um, Hell yeah, little, little that, fucking that, Ben Shapiro gets stabbed to death. Yeah. <laughs> is, isn't this an issue with the war film? Like, I mean, I think this is a, a problem with the aesthetic of the war film now, because we, with CG and everything, um, they were able to create these just massive, sprawling war vistas and part of war when viewed through that lens and filmmakers can't resist it is to minimize the individual and so so i think there's there's actually they're actively seeking kind of bland nobodies to like just bodies to fill it and like the two guys that we follow throughout this scene who are soon become one which is still one too many um it's like yeah, they're, they're they're literally it's it's almost like a video game, and they're like just the boring mouthpiece to tell you where you are at this point. Like you know, you have entered this er- arena of the world war, and it's like okay, cool. The other um, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh no, I'm just just say they're totally they're total blank slates. Like who who could possibly be rooting for or against? The, but when you talk about like the problems of the war film, like the other thing is that like that filmmakers can't resist. It's trying to create some sort of immersive uh, experience which like is impossible which they can't do yeah you can't do it there is no sensory equivalence no between that like there's yeah like the existential there. terror of being yeah. on a war field you cannot recreate that in earnest in cinema you have to tackle it in other ways yeah. and like films i think of that that work for that like say um Andre Vajda's Canal, which is one of the most terrifying mm, films mm-hmm. I've ever seen, is not on a battlefield. Or even Le Grand Illusion, which is a film that I thought of watching this, which is a World War One set film made in 1937, so much more in the wake of the war, and a film that is about the, you know, which I think has this tremendous thing that looks at the class elements of World War One. I. I mean, and for anyone who hasn't seen that film, the film basically looks at how the officer classes, there's uh, prisoners of war, uh, French prisoners of war, the Germans have them, and the German officers fraternize with the officers because they're of the same social class and they don't really care about the the regular soldiers and i think like throughout the whole film all i could think of was like these two guys in the trenches they'd be better off just shooting the officer the british officer in the head than give him <laughs> orders because he's basically like right. he, they have more in common with the german officer they stabbed on the battlefield in terms of their class interests not to go like all marxist but like <laughs> the, you know how can you but how can you not think about that in a war film because what fuels wars why do they happen they don't just happen magically but these films want to ignore all of that and just basically get down in the dirt and go isn't this exciting and it just it's you know i mean it's just 
so people pointless. love it and i yeah and they do and and that's why like i mean i got an argument yesterday with a certain critic about whether or not this film was you know anti-war enough uh, and that's what he was like arguing was that my view that it's not you know sufficiently anti-war is a boring viewpoint but my view is that it's not you know it's boring because again like you say all it's trying to do is create the sensory equivalent of being a guy <laughs> who might die at any minute yeah. which it can't do so yeah it's it's a film that just kind of ignores anything that could be possibly interesting and just gives us kind of regurgitates the same tropes over and over again and i i genuinely think a year from now no one will even be able to remember this movie sure like, yeah uh, aside, i think it'll sit on shelves i think it'd be an important um piece to show how not to make a movie because i knew we were in trouble almost immediately when they walk through the trenches and they go into the bunker where um good christ what is that actor's name the king speech is is lying in wait and this is an instance Colin of where Firth. Colin, yes Colin Firth. thank you my God. Um, so this is an instance where the product, the production is not servicing the film. The film is servicing the production because they walk in and he's got the plans laid out on a table. And instead of pulling out a new map to show them, he says, now come on the other side of this table just so that the camera can dolly in further into the bunker they're in and keep the one shot going. And, and there's at, a lot of at the end, like there's, there's moments where like characters, since it's stuck in the one take, it's like he gives, he finally, his fallen comrade, he finds his brother at the end of the film and gives him his dog tags. And it's like this really emotional scene. And, but the problem is, is that half of it, it's played out with the back of one actor's head the whole time. So we don't see any of the pain that's registering on his face. And it, it Sam Mendes, come on, close-ups are important. <laughs> Cutting is important. And, and even this film fucks up its one take gimmick because halfway through the movie, it cuts to black so it can skip ahead six hours. <laughs> <laughs> It yeah, was weird yeah. that um, Colin Firth also had a stutter in this. Yeah, <laughs> it was King George's early days, but um, yeah, I and and that's the other thing Stutters too. Is win Oscars. Every set piece has is peppered with a with a known A list act, English actor, and like at the end, it's Benedict Cumberbatch is the final guy that they have to get to. The boss, um, yeah, the boss, yeah, yeah, the boss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's I, I don't the know. boss I of mean, Oscar nominations is Benedict Cumberbatch. I think yeah, I think to to the film's credit, like Jack said, there's a few points where the long takes kind of make sense. Uh, the labyrinthian nature of the trenches, and then I, I think again when it's it's dark and the flares are going up, and and there's the fires in in the city that he's running through, and it's very mm-hmm. uh, you know like confusing and disorienting, and that makes sense. But those are two moments in a film that's two hours long, more than two hours long. And the rest of the movie, it, it, it just cries out for actual cutting and editing and, and thoughtfulness of composition. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not there. And if, if I had to sum up really the essence of this movie, what it is, it's not just you know the exciting war set pieces. For me, the whole movie can be summed up by the scene where uh, one, of our, 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 one of our characters gets into a truck with a bunch of other troops and they're just driving along, driving along, nothing's happening. And then they get stuck in the mud and they get out of the truck and they push the truck and they push it again and they push it again. And finally they get it out of the mud and they get back in the truck and they drive some more. And that's what this movie is. This movie is a truck stuck in the fucking mud and we have to sit there and watch the whole damn thing for no reason whatsoever. And it's insane. And really, for me, the only sticking question at the end of this film is, Jack, are you excited for the sequel in a few years 
where all of these soldiers go to Paris, go, go home, go go to Ireland, and yeah, and, and, murder and throw my and people. yeah. <laughs> you didn't even let me finish my joke. I was gonna say throw your great grandparents <laughs> in jail, but if we want to go straight to murder, so you know, yeah, no, yeah, that's that's what they said they in took, jail. They took the train to Paris. I thought that's. Wait, the oh man, if only the, the that, that's the crossover we're all looking for. No, I mean that's yeah. It's again, it's totally depoliticized. We have no, we don't know anything about these people. We don't care the shell shock, the horror. Um, what what I would say about this film is that um, Roger Deakins does a great job. I mean, <laughs> no question, him him and the production designer definitely moves the camera the way he was supposed yeah, to. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's tremendous what they've done. The him and the production designer, it the film, the has waterfall a, scene. You know, you know, it's got a wonderful look to it, um, and the, the technical challenges of doing it—it's all very impressive. And um, yeah, I, it, if this was a fifteen-minute short film, um, that would have been cool. Myros loved that, it though. I think, who? Myros. Oh my! Oh sure. Yeah. Of course. Well, he loves war film. He World War One is kind of his his whole thing. Yeah, that's his. Joke. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, that was that was what I, the joke I was making is that they should have just uh, Mendes should have just made an. Uh, a remake of the music video for one. Uh, <laughs> been nice and brief. Uh, there I are no guitar track. solos here. <laughs> this this movie fucking sucks. <laughs> um, I I don't know. Like you're talking about that, like trying to evoke the vulnerability on the battlefield and how how it's nearly impossible. And I feel like the Hollywood shorthand now is replace the grizzled American hero with a, a pasty soft doughy british man uh, and that that makes it feel more vulnerable because clearly a bullet would just cut this guy to shreds uh but yeah i i don't understand the impulse behind a movie like this it's a movie i i can scarcely even describe without just citing other movies because that's what it is it's it is it's an experiment it's dunkirk with without the kinetic energy it's it's Saving also the Private Ryan runner. without the heart. It's it's the Revenant without compelling actors. It's, yeah. it's shitty. It's fucking awful. Oh, oh, how I yearn to have been watching Dunkirk during this movie. <laughs> let's get things off you thought this you'd thing. never say. Yeah. yeah, let's get. Yeah, let's. We gotta get. We gotta. Get let me. Let me this. just say one thing I do like about 1917, and that's when Andrew Scott, aka Hot Priest, shows up, and he's hungover, and it's it's like the entire war is just a minor inconvenience for him. <laughs> I, I do like the I do like the bit of him giving them the flare gun, and he says, "Hey, we don't have many of those left, so when you get shot, throw it back to us." Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I want to I want to say one more thing, and that's that. And then I'll of, I want to do one more after. Okay. Yeah. A lot of what? <laughs> do we want to talk about the crescendo run? <laughs> no. Well, we no. we could get to that, but what I want to say is that a lot of what people seem to enjoy about this is that it's a World War One film, and you know, right. it's tackling an area of history that people are less familiar with but the problem inherent with that is when you make a world war ii movie you don't have to tell people anything about the war because it's just a shorthand on oh, nazis they're they're bad guys but yeah. what like as, as if you assume that the populace has less understanding of world war one this this makes endlessly it, it's nonsense to me it's just like why it, what is the shorthand for why I should be rooting for these British people? What is it? Di what differentiates them from the Germans? Why is it? Why am I just meant to blindly go? Well, this guy's the good guy because the camera's behind him, and <laughs> that other guy, boy, he's a mean 
Kaiser. Well, don't, don't you understand? The Archduke was assassinated. Yeah, it, it's not <laughs> World War II. There's no fucking bad guys. There's no mustache twirling going out of World War One in the same way. Thereby, this kind of hurts a narrative like that because right. it's like, they're, sure. they're all people and we don't make any effort at all to humanize the Germans. They're just shadowy figures in the background firing rifle shots nah, at the, I mean, the protagonist. I, I, I assume that they're everyone got game. the same World War One education that I got in high school, which was my history teacher was put on administrative leave because he showed our class a video of an Al-Qaeda guy cutting off somebody's head. Oh, uh, so when he came back, it was World War One time, and he was just like, I don't actually have time to teach this. So he just showed us Metallica's one music video. And he's just like, this is pretty much it. So, you know, I, I got a pretty firm grasp on it. But hey, let's move on to another dad movie. Uh, you guys like Fast Cars? Because uh, this one's got it for like nine <laughs> hours. Uh, I never thought I would be watching a movie where I wished I was watching The Adventures of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay, but here we are. It's it's Ford versus Ferrari, and Steve, boy howdy, it's Steve, a movie. Steve, let me tell you, I love this movie. I thought it was fantastic. Isn't this the one you didn't watch? Tier. I didn't watch it, no, and I think that's really worked in my favor. Fantastic. I uh, love the bit where Christian Bale does the voice, and um, Matt Damon is in it, I think, which is, you know, that's fantastic for the market. Everyone yeah, loves Matt Damon. The mark of somebody um, who loved this movie. Matt Damon is in it, I think. <laughs> I think yeah. This uh, is there's uh, cars, me, two of them at least. There's probably. at least two cars. Yeah. And yeah, you no, know what, a lot Jack, going on. Jack, let me do a quick reenactment of the whole film. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm, I'm get ready. Into, getting into character. <clears throat> All right, starting as Christian Bale. Oi, there's a, there's some we gotta put a light aluminum frame on this here race, can't we do? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I uh, uh, think we think we ought to. We let's do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for you, buddy. I have my reservations I'm about Mr. this. I'm Mr. Business, and in my business mind, I think cars are actually bad. Well, I don't agree with you, but but we're gonna do this anyways. Oi, you fucking cunt! <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole movie. I mean, I mean, I, I I saw the trailer, and my main takeaway from the trailer is that Christian Bale, an English man, has forgotten what English Ter- people yeah, are, yeah. and, he, and he's had been to doing watch Mary Poppins to figure it out. He's been doing the, like, for- <laughs> the American accent for too long that he just yeah. like didn't know how to revert. Back. He's been growling too much. As I'm just Batman. wondering if one of the women he hit hit back and did brain damage, oh, and he's forgotten English accents. Because uh, that would be. Good. I have like literally nothing to say about this movie other than like Tracy Letts is a good presence to have on screen sometimes. So, uh, you guys, I'd talk add in about uh, Ray, Ray McKinnon to that too. This is this is the film I've forgotten the most, and despite having watched it just under two weeks ago. And I think it's a film that could, with Bale's accent, it could only be marginally improved if he said, tally-ho, every time he passed somebody on the road. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I this is just a dad movie. Um, I don't know how it got, how it snuck into the Oscars. <sighs> uh, yeah, I, it's, it is like an archetype dad movie. It does everything that a good dad movie should be doing. But I didn't even like... I, I didn't even like Tracy Letts in this. I thought he was like cutting cutting a fucking Paul Heyman promo on the assembly line. <laughs> yeah, he just fucking drops it and Cro- he's just crosses he, his arms. He's, he's, 
I he's kind of over the top. Comparing this to like his role in Little Women, it's yeah. just like yeah, well, because yeah. like his first scene, they're in the factory, and he's like, "All right, we're shutting production down until we get a new idea," and that's like that's yeah, supposed to, to the be factory workers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you fucking factory workers <laughs> are fired until you come up with our big idea. It's like what? And <laughs> what then the fuck yeah. are we even doing it? Yeah, it's, there's there's a lot of weird shit in this movie. Uh, I, I mean, so it, it frames this faceless suit as like the villainous uh, yeah Josh like, executive Lucas, who is fucking awful. He is beyond terrible <laughs> yeah. in this movie, like just cringeworthy <sighs> bad. And then it, it it reframes like Lee Iacocca as some fucking like. <laughs> The union busting king of Ford is is like a hero in this movie. It's so weird. And then there's there's other things where I felt like I, I tried to stay as engaged as humanly possible with this film, despite it actively working against me. Yeah. But there's all these parts with uh, Christian Bale's wife, where in the beginning oh, of the movie they they have this big argument, where he's like. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang up racing. I need to get an honest job. I do. And she's like, No, you love racing. Racing's who you are. Like the, the expected <laughs> thing that you're supposed to do. This is like an episode and of then, Home Movies. <laughs> pretty much. But and then later in the movie, like an hour later, when he is hanging up or hanging out with the 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 Shelby guy, uh, trying to get back into racing and do the Le Mans 24 hour race and all this stuff, and then she has a fucking meltdown. She's like. You said you were never gonna race again. He's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, baby. I sure told you." And it's this huge, like, blow-up, supposedly emotional scene, and yet their their previous discussion over the matter was she was disappointed that he wasn't continuing to pursue racing. So I I, I don't know where any of that fucking came from. Yeah, I thought I might have missed something there. I'm like, what? was there like another conversation here? Because it's totally out of the blue. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. It's it's completely insane. So I have I have two questions about this film, having not watched it, and never will I watch it unless something goes wrong somewhere along the You're way. In the hospital bed and it's the only thing on TV. Yeah, there's two reasons I didn't watch it. Really, you know, I mean, there there were more than two reasons I didn't watch it, but there's two that kind of stood out to me. Which is one, how do you work a narrative arc where the plucky underdog is the Ford Motor Company, <laughs> one of the largest car manufacturers in the world? Um. You know, like that that just doesn't make any sense. Well, and then Jack, the second thing Let well, me let me mm -hmm. address your first question, uh, because it's it's quite simple. All you have to do is portray uh, the Italians, specifically the the Ferrari guys, Holy as like shit. just <laughs> over the top Italian caricatures. It's like, it's, so like it's every worse, single like, line. You know what it reminded just, me of is is uh fifteen seventeen to Paris, the way Clint like Again, that that's a much better movie than this, but there's issues where anytime Clint Eastwood is filming a Muslim man, it's like, oh, oh, oh he. it's like the hooded eyes and the, and the Italians in this. It's, it's yeah, literally, they might as well be terrorists driving their Ferraris into the fucking <laughs> Twin Towers. I'm like, what the hell is happening with this? Every yeah, single Italian guy, Italian like their dialogue like, is just like, oh, I need a more cigarettes, a spaghetti. Like, that's all they say and do. It's just like smoke. Drink and, espresso. And, yeah, and, and, and the yes, way that and they... And yet somehow kept building faster cars than the Ford Motor Company. Weird. So yeah. the trick they pull is that they separate Shelby from Ford. So Ford is like almost an antagonist in the film as well. So Shelby's a plucky underdog who's oh, besieged by the uh, swore the Italians. Right, so so, so, so the essentially like bookkeeping is the hero. <laughs> Pretty much. 
Yeah, yeah, nine. Okay, less. and the the other thing that confused me about this film is um, the title because it's Ford versus Ferrari in the US and in the US only. Everywhere else in the world, it's called Le Mans, which makes sense. The Mans. It's that was the race they won. But I'm just curious about like who are they aiming this movie at in the United States? That they were like, no one knows what Le Mans is. It's like surely this is for car people who probably you're gonna know what Le Mans is have an idea but instead of just Ford versus Ferrari like two car makes you've probably heard of wow. it just seems like uh I don't know like I who made the film why why is there it seems like there's an assumption that anyone who watches this movie in America at least is a moron who doesn't even know what they should be watching the film for uh just yeah well I mean there's there's two answers to this one is is really an, it's it's another question for me uh clearly in America Stock car racing, very popular. NASCAR, everybody loves it. Uh, over in Europe, people like Formula One quite a bit. That's a thing, especially if you're a rich shithead. But Formula One and rally, yeah. I don't understand. Like, was, was Le Mans racing, was that, like, a thing? Because in the movie, it's, like, it's on television, it's on yeah, the radio. Yeah, this has got to be bullshit. This, there's two separate 24-hour races in this movie where the fucking wife and child are sitting at the old telly watching it alive. Uh, I'm like, are you kidding me? There's like three channels on a fucking television. I don't think they're broadcasting a 24 hour car race live. Yeah, no, at best, Le Mans, like whoever crossed the finish line, made it to like a 30 second snippet in the news on general interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So well, there's some Daytona 24 hour race that's on the radio that they're listening to. And then, uh, yeah, Le Mans is, is the full simulcast for 24 hours. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, this is not a thing that could possibly have happened. Now, the, the real essence of this film, before we move past it, and I think this is the final thing that we really need to wrestle with here is... It is directed by James, James Mangold. Mangold. Is there a less interesting acclaimed director in the world that's been Sam you know, putting out movies? <laughs> I was going to say, Sam Mendes seems like the competition. I just like, if you, if you go through James Mangold's filmography, it's a long string of things where I go... Oh, that was okay. What did he do uh, besides that wasn't very Wolverine? Good. Yeah, I, <laughs> Logan, I remember sorry. Copland being fine. You know, he did Wolverine and Logan. Oh god, yeah, he did Wolverine, <laughs> Logan. He did. I think Walk the Line is probably his best movie. I would say Oof. probably Three Ten to Yuma is his best movie, which is saying something. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's oh, well, a forgettable. I, movie. I don't know. Copland, Girl Interrupted, Kate and Leopold. <laughs> Fucking identity. <laughs> oh, identity rules. I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah at the end of the day it's oh god like you really just have to ask yourself how much do i love talladega nights and do i want to see it played straight right down to like the sasha baron cohen character as the villainous <laughs> other driver during the le mans race yeah. and if the answer for you is yes then and if you've got three hours <laughs> we've got the film for you yeah, that's, like that's I could deal it. with this if it was if it was an hour shorter and mm -hmm. get rid of everything with the fucking Christian Bale's son. Like every time they cut to this precocious kid, like fucking mapping roots and stuff, it's like, okay, e fuck enough with this. And the, e enough. And the eight codas. Oh yeah. God, in God. heaven. Well, we gotta we gotta recognize that this man gave his life for something, cars or some for, shit. For yeah. corporations, man. He's a fucking it's hero because cool. he died in a car <laughs> <laughs> yeah
Yeah, man. If you if you love your wife and your son, and you know, you, sometimes you gotta you gotta die for the Ford Motor Company. That's what I always tell people. All right, let, why don't we move on to something that doesn't suck huge ass? How does that sound? Yay! Sounds uh, great. <laughs> so the next one on the docket. Uh, this was a uh, it's a 1982 Charles Band movie that managed to sneak in for a Best Picture nom in 2020. <laughs> Not quite sure how that happened. Uh, Parasite, man. I absolutely love this movie, so I'm, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. I didn't get a chance to watch Parasite yet. You are you fucking serious? Are you absolutely serious no. with me right now? Everyone oh, saw it like three times. Saw toys. <laughs> that's that's the correct answer. Yeah, you should see this twice, three times. Go see it. I think it's going. It's coming back in the theaters is, now. I know yeah. they're they're running it, it in is. Milwaukee. So in black and white uh, yeah. version. Oh yeah, black and white. Oh. I'm holding out for that. It's my <laughs> hold out for thing. That's a big why in my mind. Like. This, the black and white this? version, black and white version really brings James Mangold into the fold really <laughs> yeah. again. Why, why is yeah. why is Bong Joon Ho pulling that one? Well, we had Logan Noir. Now we need Parasite. Exactly. Noir. We had uh, the Mad Maybe Max Fury Road because Mad Max Fury Road Steel and Chrome was such a hit on one of the most vibrant and colorful movies ever made. Let's let's take all of that out and put it in theaters. And isn't isn't the version of of Mad Max that's black and white. Obviously, it didn't get re-released in theaters that way, but there's like four different home releases of Mad Max Fury Road, and it's just an extra on one of those home features. Like, it's it's just more of an afterthought because they were yeah. like, oh, yeah, we just wondered what it would look like if we did it in high contrast black and white. We're like, well, that well, looks well, kind of cool. Wasn't the issue... Not to get totally off track, didn't George Miller originally want to make Fury Road in black and white, and when they wouldn't let him, then he decided he'd just lean fully into color? Wasn't mm-hmm. that the thing? So yeah. then they just went backwards, which doesn't make any sense, because honestly, there's no point in releasing a film in black and white if it wasn't actually composed in black and white. It's stupid. Yeah. Um, but that's here, neither here nor there. Parasite, it makes even less sense than usual to do a black and white mm-hmm. version. I don't understand why that's a thing. Now, Jack, um, the color version mm-hmm. of the artist, that's what everybody really wants to see. There's a well, yeah, that in the lighthouse. I want <laughs> the lighthouse say, in full this, color. Is, is the genesis of this stupid fucking trend uh, perhaps even more boring than James Mangold, Frank Darabont? Is he the first to do this bullshit? Oh, yeah, there we go. There's, Wait, there's your What does he guy do? Right like the majestic in black and white? The mist. The mist in black and white. Oh. Yeah. I missed that. Was that a, was that a thing? Because, I oh, mean, yeah. I think, I think like, Park Chan-wook, who did uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, was supposed to, like, seg... It was supposed to turn black and white halfway. Like, the color was going to leach out of the film and eventually would finish in black and white. And he couldn't do that because it was too expensive at the time for the photochemical process but they kind of reverse engineered it for later editions so it's like is it a korean thing but i don't i don't think it's a korean thing i think this is just shameless marketing now it's just a filter in your iMovie they should do like uh pleasantville with the reverse trajectory (laughs) (laughs) anyhow parasite is good uh it, it has colors in it and i think the colors are fine i think they belong there i have no issue with them yeah that's that's Moving my on. biggest takeaway too <laughs> and we're done i mean this movie uh, has been sort of one talked to death like eight hundred thousand people wrote about it and then yeah. um the other thing is that it kind of speaks for itself um you know like mm-hmm. like it kind of there isn't a whole lot to extrapolate that uh, until you're just like you know, uh, being didactic. It does. 
It does and it doesn't until you get that terrible L.A. review of books uh, version where they think that it's anti-poor people. <laughs> and you're like, did how what, do you watch the film and that was your takeaway? Is that, that the, the director thinks poor people suck? And it's like the whole point of the film is that poor people don't have solidarity. They, they fight with each other and the rich people live lovely lives above them. That's the whole film. And still someone managed to sit down and go like, I think this guy thinks poor people, poor people are hitting each other and being mean to each other. <laughs> he, this guy thinks poor people suck. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, apparently you can't be too didactic mm-hmm. until we get to Jojo Rabbit, at least. <laughs> at which point, maybe we can, maybe someone figured out, someone cracked the code on how to be too didactic. Um, I've got to say, um, as a longtime fan of, or kind of like a longtime follower, of Bong Joon-ho I've had some of his films work more or less for me and kind of Korean cinema generally uh, firstly I think this is awesome that this film has just managed to gain the the public traction that it's managed is just phenomenal because Korean cinema has been just knocking it out of the park for like 15 20 years now yeah. really 20 years I think since the new wave really kicked off in the early 2000s say old boy kicked Bong it off among them yeah I mean, it was starting even before that, like there was JSA and Shiri and a few of these other films that really kind of like were, were becoming big enough hits in Korea that they were kind of transplanting out among, you know, kind of foreign film aficionados who were looking for something new. Um, I'm, I, so, you know, I think it's fantastic that Korea has finally just gotten this incredibly high profile thing, you know, that people who don't watch subtitled movies are showing up to this movie. That's fantastic. Uh, I will say I'm really a little bit surprised that it's Bong who did it, though, because like I've always looked at Bong's films, which are populist. Uh, I mean, he, he works in genre a lot. You know, his police procedural with Memories of Murder. He made a monster movie with the host and so on. Um, but, like, his films have a very, very Korean sensibility to them. I get I, what I would imagine must be a Korean sensibility. I find it through a lot of the those films, which is, um, God, they're, like, they're just so dark. They're often very funny, but they have almost this just venomous hatred of power of government of organization they have total cynicism they are you know kind of a deeply entrenched distrust of every kind of uh, political institution you could imagine and bong pushed that i feel further than like park sean wook or others who you know made films that were more about personal characters you know that were more about you know wrapped up in individual, you know, individual stories. Uh, Bong, more than the other directors, I think really challenged institutions more than, you know, many of the others within that fold that kind of traveled internationally. And he made Snowpiercer, which uh, I thought sucked personally. I was not a fan of that movie at all. But, you know, that was kind of like one of the higher profile uh, English language films made by one of these directors. Park Chan-wook made like Stoker, which I thought was a better film, but no one apparently watched it or talked about it ever. <laughs> uh, I've never heard anyone bring up Stoker in a conversation. And um, so I'm just a little surprised that Bong was the guy who cracked it. And with a film that honestly is pretty fearlessly kind of uh, challenging kind of given social constructs. And I mean, particularly in, in the US, mm-hmm. uh, uh a country where everyone is pretty much brought up to absolutely just worship the wealthy as basically, you know, nobility, that their wealth asserts their moral goodness. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's just such a strange kind of a, a thing. And I, mean, I and this way, I talked earlier about how Little Women, I think, may be the film that will age the best and the one that people might return to the most out of all of our nominees. And, you know, I think that might happen. I don't know how this one will age because it feels so of this moment. And I don't say that as a bad thing. But, like, this really is the, the zeitgeist film of this selection. Yeah. Well, and like we said before, it's despite the fact that some idiots have interpreted it in, you know, completely moronic ways, it, this is not a movie that's subtle about its politics, you know? So, <laughs> unless you're the kind of person who watches, like, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie or The Exterminating Angel, and you're like, oh, what's this about? Uh, it's pretty obvious what he's going after and, and how he... he sort of frames class warfare but i do like some of the subtlety here and the and the things that he he teases out that maybe other movies about class warfare don't get into as much so little things like uh how the the rich family always comments on the smell of poor people and how they always smell like wet rags because this family that's working for them uh lives in like a sub-basement apartment or whatever and it, it's it's this kind of like working class fear of always being on the on the verge of, of getting discovered that you're you're not part of this upper class even as you try to work your way up out of your your social standing and again just the way that he he sort of pits these working class people against each other and and that's the real conflict is the the ruling class is orchestrating all of this but the the real conflict is viscerally between other working class people just butting heads and trying to scrape and claw and and move to the top and this is great because it it works with sort of where american politics are are starting to wake up and become more conscious of of class but also this is something that has been going on south in south korea to an even higher degree for the last three decades where there is absolutely no middle class in the majority of South Korea. It is it's not a meritocracy huge divide. No, unfortunately, Sean, it's not. Uh, so this this really rings true. And, and this is a, a country, too, that has, you know, their, their current leader. He was sort of like an Obama esque figure. And he ran on all these, you know, positivity, optimism, neoliberal policies. And he hasn't done anything really to help people out. And in fact, uh, there's there's a whole service that they, they, they mention at one point in Parasite where in South Korea, it's sort of like being a taxi driver or like a proto Uber thing. I think it started in like the early 2000s where people worked as cab drivers, but their only job was you would get a phone call and then you would drive a drunk rich guy's car home after he'd been drinking all night. And <laughs> these people like they worked insane hours and they tried to unionize, and the liberal South Korean government basically fucking squashed it. Uh, and it's it's just kind of a that's just not just, right. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's nice that he touches on very specific South Korean issues, but also paints a, a broad, accessible, approachable picture of what class warfare looks like. And and yeah, under that consideration, I, I there was a question that I heard. Um, posed on uh, one of the Ringer podcasts that I wanted to port over and ask you guys, is Parasite the first post-Trump film? Are you fucking sick? They actually... <laughs> can, we, can we just mute Sean out of this? Oh, we can just no. delete him like a Stalin-esque photo. And just... <laughs> no, uh, it, it's... I mean, we haven't even... Um, we haven't really talked about how well-constructed this is in terms of uh, 
like the the dramatic weight and the twist and um uh, and also it's just a visually well orchestrated film yeah i'd say formally this film is pretty much perfect um it's it's magnificently crafted every shot is just so it's tense yeah it's tense every shot is just framed and and cut perfectly with each other i i've got really no complaints with how this film was made i i i'm all yeah. for a parasite and i think that kind of maybe get to um i think maybe miles has more reservations than i do i don't really have reservations but just as like i think it's a really good movie but it becomes like this object like it's so it, it just becomes sort of this this perfect box um and uh that kind of distance yeah i do wonder I do wonder if it's like I don't know if it's the Bong film I'll return to like compared to say Mother or something like a much more prickly or Memories of Murder mm-hmm. like this one is very like I like to say kind of a beautiful beautifully constructed like there's almost there's no rough edges yeah. at all which maybe might work against it in the long term but like it's pretty exhilarating when you're in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah Myros, yeah. uh what are, you, what are your thoughts on this one well I, I wouldn't even say I had reservations I think in the moments I probably appreciated it less than I have come to, but I think it's, it's a film that is built around a couple of powerhouse sequences for me. And some of the rest of it doesn't really do a whole hell of a lot for me, but uh, I think it's, it's worth the price of admission just to see a couple of these set pieces and sequences and, yeah, that whole the whole flood. My God, like I thought that was probably the best, you know, ten minutes of of cinema I've seen all year. But uh, I think I think it was funny. I, I just talked earlier about like 1917 and how the production designer was the hero of that, along with Deacons, and did an incredible job with designing all of these texture trenches and awfulness. And yet, Parasite is so much better than it, even from a production design perspective. Um, so yeah, even even the one places where 1917 hits, it's still like just coming in second place to Parasite, where they they built. They, they built an entire slum neighborhood and the whole house all of that was none of that was pre-existing they built the the staircase down into the terrain like it's almost like <clears throat> excuse me like metropolis uh in that we have like the house on the hill and then we venture down into the sewers where the poor people live which you know none of this is subtle as we've said it's not it's not a film and i kind of I, I kind of appreciate that i think sometimes people get um they kind of get a little bit hung up on like a film that just kind of goes straight in. Like, I've heard people complain about, say, like, Ken Loach's films for, like, a lack of subtlety. But at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, people are suffering right now. Like, the, the current political landscape has just a whole rabble of people living in misery for no particular reason. So I don't understand why we exactly need to have subtlety in everything. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it's pretty good to just call it like you see it. So I kind of like how the, the film kind of just goes straight for the jugular and does it in a really entertaining way but it very like i think it very clearly draws its battle lines and i just wonder you know i like i it's it's confusing because then on the other side of it elon musk's favorite film of the year is parasite uh chrissy teigen loves parasite (laughs) what fucking film are they watching it's a real are, are we the bad guys moment yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's, an enterta- it's it's like a crisp piece of entertainment you know yeah it could stand on like even just the superficial details of it people i'm sure really enjoying because it's the first half is really played out like a heist movie with the with all the moving pieces and i'm sure i'm sure that's what they're you know 
glomming onto with their praise of this movie. I don't think they're mm-hmm. looking past that. All right. Yeah, well, I think that like right. for me, it's the coda like drops it a little bit for me, and that's probably just because, again, I, I'm probably more rooted in the American mindset like the storytelling. And, and uh, I'm, am I the only one? I remember we talked about this. I feel like I'm maybe the only one who kind of liked the coda, the the final part, or felt that it was it doesn't hit me very hard. Fitting. Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting, like, I mean, I guess my interpretation of it is being that it kind of, like, settles as the system reasserts itself, that the son basically is locked into a lifetime of labor just to kind of get back where he started, almost to reclaim his own family. Uh, I thought that was, like, a really interesting image. It's it's unusual. As it was unfolding, I was kind of confused. Like, the whole film seems to chart so naturally story-wise that this is the that was that that final sequence is really the first part where the film kind of deviates to a place where you kind of have to find your footing again but yeah i i quite liked it i i, I thought it was a, an interesting kind of I, and i think that's kind of the thing that maybe stays with you a little bit more maybe what i talked about there aren't that many rough edges of that little dalliance mm-hmm. with something a little bit more uh, ambiguous would be the word like kind of ambiguous yeah is is kind of um kind of pulls the film into your memory a little better yeah all right yeah, well i think it uh, works I, I thematically i think it yeah. works it's just for me as far as the actual structure of the film it felt like kind of too cute of a button to put on things and and again i i do recognize that as as way more indicative of like asian storytelling and it is very sort of elliptical and it, it works for what it is it just doesn't necessarily work for me and that's all right mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. Well, either way, it's one of, if not the best movie that you can go and see in the theater right now. So, yeah, go and see it if you haven't yet. What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, We got one more movie left to discuss this week, and we're going to end on another high note. Uh, Thank God. Uh, Next week's going to be a real joy. Hmm. Uh, So this is, I mean, I I say a high note, but I don't know if you guys are are familiar, but Quentin Tarantino, uh, he's really into feet, and he's really not into women unless they're sex objects. Uh, This is a movie where people who hate it seem to think it's about Sharon Tate, and that's why they hate it, because it's not about Sharon Tate. And I am, of course, talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Jake, what'd you think? I love this movie. Um, I recommended it earlier last year as a as I put it over, but um, I've seen it twice now, and I uh, it's just a lot of a lot of fun. Um, I love living in that era. I love it's it's like the perfect hangout movie. I love Leo and Brad. I think Brad Pitt is a god in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think uh, yeah, I've got I got nothing bad to say about this movie. Um, my favorite best picture nominee yeah yeah um it's- i think my, my takeaway from this one um because somehow i think i might be the only person in the world who hadn't seen inglorious bastards prior to watching this because i just kept forgetting yeah uh, i since recti- i since rectified that so watching this movie and i knew it was about the sharon tate murders etc uh charles manson's cult and all that um because i I, in, I never realized and I probably would have thought of this if I'd seen Inglorious Bastards previously, which, as we know in its finale, rewrites World War II, uh, completely changes the history. It never occurred to me watching this movie that it wasn't going to end with the Sharon Tate murder. Um, so I was kind of watching it and really enjoying it and really enjoying the texture. And like Jake says, this is like an absolute hangout movie. Like There's there's, there's no storyline through it, most of this film. It's just, it's just really a couple of guys well going to realized. work. Yeah, just guys hanging out. 
cracking a couple of beers, watching themselves on TV like we all do every day. Dudes rock. And uh, yeah, dudes, absolutely. Saturday is for the boys and every <laughs> other day as well in Hollywood. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I'm watching, I was just really enjoying it, but I was thinking like, but this film is going to end with the brutal murder of a pregnant woman how you know it's gotta end badly it's this is gonna suck i'm gonna hate this because i love it so much right now and it's gonna end in this thing and i just you know it's senseless and stupid i don't know why tarantino did this and then the ending comes along and spoiler alert it changes everything it rewrites history and i was just completely like just pull the carpet out from underneath me i was just like oh my god i didn't expect that and i loved it um and yet I loved it in a way that I think is different to a lot of other people because I still think it was a melancholy ending. Like a lot of people were like, you know, it's wish fulfillment and, you know, it's 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 violence against women, even though the women happen to be racist cult members. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I'm sorry, <laughs> no, I'm I have a there. huge amount of sympathy for them. Um, but yeah, like I, I watched the film and there was my, I had this melancholy kind of response to it because I know in real life, you know, Leo and Brad Pitt being like two macho guys, a bit goofy, a bit stupid, but you know, they kind of go about their business or whatever. Like all that macho posturing, it didn't, you know, it didn't save Sharon Tate. She died uh, and everything was, you know, kind of went downhill from there. It was, it really was this huge cultural shift. And, you know, I felt, so I had this, I just saw it was a really interesting film and in that it offered up this alternative perspective, but I don't think it overwrote the reality. It, you know, I didn't come out of it just feeling great. Um, so I think there was, you know, a kind of a texture in there. So, yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting film. And I do think, frankly, I think this might be Tarantino's best film. Uh, I, time will tell. I should watch it again and watch some of his other ones again. Uh, I know which ones of his aren't his best films, like Django. But uh, this one, I think, could be a really... Uh, this is a contender for me. I think is like Tarantino, maybe, I don't know how he gets anywhere else higher than this frankly this seems to me to be everything he's he's working on uh kind of encapsulated in two hours 40 minutes which for once for a best picture nominee actually doesn't feel like two hours and 40 minutes yeah. so you know in the good way rather than 1917 which clocks in just under two hours but feels like every year of the fucking war so um yeah i i thought this is fantastic yeah, I uh, for me this is probably my my best picture choice if I if I had to choose from the field here. Uh it's kind of a toss up for me between this and Parasite. But yeah, I, I think it's Tarantino's best movie. It's uh, like understated in in some ways and it it doesn't have all the snappy dialogue that you expect out of a Tarantino movie. It, it feels much more natural and despite all the crazy shit especially at the end of this film that happens for me, the best part was just Brad Pitt driving around like late 1960s Los Angeles. That, oh my God. It's, it's so good. It's so good. I could watch two hours of just that. Brad Pitt be, driving is one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. It's, that. it's amazing. It's so good. It does. It really channels the spirit of model shop, which yeah. is one of my favorite driving around LA in the sixties movies. Um, it's yeah, it's great. I kind of I was I wasn't there, and I kind of wish I could be. That would be a holiday experience. Total Recall should do one of those, <laughs> uh, where a guy just you know that's the package. You just drive around L.A. and like the traffic's not that bad. No one seems to be stuck in traffic. If you are at a light stop, there's this weird teenage girl that it's okay to really like because you're Brad Pitt. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of get out clauses working there. Uh, yeah, it's it's 
pretty good. It's, it's worth seeing too, just for production design alone, it's something that, I mean, I don't think it's something we've really discussed, but like the highest grossing movie of last year and now ever is Avengers Endgame. And that film was shot on like one set with walls of green screen. And this movie was made for a, a fraction of that. And the way he recreates 1968 Los Angeles, it doesn't like come off as a, a tacky or it's almost like a, a character a, in the movie it, itself. Exactly. I, I took the which character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood test are you and I got the city of L.A. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, it looks fantastic. And I think I think this might be my favorite Tarantino movie. And I think. The sequence set at Spawn Ranch um, might be one of the best directed scenes of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sequence is remarkable just as a standalone yeah. thing. I'm not uh, ready to. S- I'm not ready to say if this is my favorite of his or not until I revisit Four Rooms because it's, it's been a while. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's this or Jackie Brown for me. The hangout movies are where he's the best. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, no, it's not there for me. I guess, but uh, it's. It, it very well might be my... There's a couple I have not seen of the nominees, but of the ones we covered today, this is easily my favorite film. And yeah. DiCaprio would be my easy choice for best actor. I think this is the best he's ever been. Oh, I agree. Like, yeah, I think there are good. scenes in this film where he is remarkable. And when the whole sequence where he is acting in the Western, uh, it's just... I, I was astonished by him. I don't think he had that range. <laughs> Did what you say? Uh, yeah. It's like the best acting you've ever seen. Uh, no, no. But uh, it was a hell of a lot better than uh, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, who would probably <laughs> beat him out for best actor. Uh, <laughs> can, can we discuss here that Marco Robbie got nominated for Bombshell oh. despite being in this film? And there was the big discussion I can't speak here. To that. That. I haven't seen Bombshell. I haven't seen Bombshell either. Don't but see I Bombshell. I have no problem. Steve can back me up in saying there's no problem in saying that she is better in this film and more important in this film. Um, but a bunch of people were angry because she doesn't talk. And obviously in a film, if you don't talk, you're not important or a character. That's a very important thing that we all learned from that's watching right. movies. Yeah. Um, and that's why uh, mute people uh, can't be in movies ever. Nope. <laughs> and that's very sad and it's not ableist of me to suggest that that's just the science dictates that's how you make movies but um, no, Margot Robbie is like she's just this phenomenal presence in this film and she's meant to be like Sharon Tate is almost like she represents everything the like springtime of Hollywood the potential the excitement the you know and all, all of the like the, the good things that can happen in what's otherwise you know freely depicted within the film itself is kind of cynical and grimy and repetitive and kind of you know opportunistic um you know like it, it's i think it's a really interesting film in that it, it kind of recreates it certainly tarantino has a fondness for you know kind of this era of studio filmmaking but also i think we can all acknowledge like uh you know if tv like it's kind of like it was the best you had but like this stuff you can look back on it now and people like really enjoy it for its simplicity to a large degree uh, the repetitiveness of this television these kind of genre films the fact that Sharon Tate's one film she's in is like has this terrible martial arts sequence in it um, but they flash to her uh, you know training with Bruce Lee and so on like it's kind of a film that I think counters balances all these different 
pl- pros and cons of of Hollywood filmmaking really beautifully to kind of just cre- create a kind of complexity about the whole thing. And I know Tarantino is quite fond of it, but I don't think necessarily when you watch this movie, you're going to come out and go, films were better in the 1960s or whatever. I don't think it's that movie. It's not making that argument. It's just kind of like portraying the the broad power of the mechanisms that were centered in Hollywood at that time, the dream factory, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I think it's a really fascinating, interesting film and more so than most of Tarantino's films, I think really toys interestingly with how film can emulate reality and deviate from it in very interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it won't win. Well, I think it's uh, <laughs> I think it's very interesting in juxtaposition with uh, Inglorious Bastards, because to me, the alternate history aspect of that film is far less satisfying. It's it's very much feels like wish fulfillment and cartoonish. And, and here, when he does, he pulls the same trick, but it's so much more effective here. Uh, it is, and especially like literally the last 60 seconds of this film recontextualized the whole thing for me. I, I found it to be always... A fun place to hang out, but it, but it felt very slight to me until that last minute of the film, when all of a sudden it, it just nicely clicked into place, and that that sense of melancholy really settled in, and it it, it felt less about this wish fulfillment and more about highlighting how fake this was and what really did happen and the horror that that did occur that night and. Yeah, I, I think it, it did something really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really liked the ending of Inglorious Bastards in the context of that film because I think it's kind of like a call to arms of the possibility of film. Um, and also, honestly, kind of like a like an ex, like a true exploitation film and that it gives maybe it didn't happen like that but it gives a hero it's kind of like i was just thinking earlier this year i watched uh, black 47 which is like a irish famine set film and it's just an irish guy going around and killing a bunch of british people and it's hugely satisfying and that didn't really happen like that and um, but you know there's kind of like there there's a, an emotional uh kind of thing it can satisfy that I think is really is really good and you know kind of really interesting um, I, but I liked it in Inglorious Bastards but I agree with you I think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really pushes it to the next level it's something so much more interesting um, and I know Tarantino talks about he's only going to make 10 movies and uh, this so he's got one more in the tank and I'm like I maybe just maybe stop now star trek baby that's what's coming next <laughs> star trek or rated star trek just swearing star trek yeah you know what i take i take back all my comments uh hearing captain picard say fuck is gonna absolutely just blow this movie out of the water that's that's all we're asking for i want jonathan frakes to just whip his dick out uh okay well let's wrap this one up we've got another episode coming next week with the rest of the best picture nominations uh, normally we use this segment to put something over, but I want to do something a little different this week because, oh. uh, you know, maybe we'll do putovers next week. But I thought in in the spirit of, of the Best Picture nominations, I want each of you to tell me which one of the little women best represents you as a person. So go ahead, Jake. Uh, well, as the youngest one here, I'm going to go with Amy because um, I also like to draw. <laughs> great yeah <laughs> all right uh jack how about you which little woman are you 
The sickly dying one. Okay. All right. Good choice. Sean? I'll take Meg. Great. You know, honestly, I, we'll, we'll get into that, but I, I agree with you 100% on that one. Uh, Myros, how about you? Which little woman are you? Uh, well, uh, I guess I'm Joe because I'm never going to get married. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for me, I, I had you guys ranked. Uh, I had Myros, I had you as Amy. Mm. Uh, Sean, I had you down as Meg. Jake, you, you are certainly the best of us, so I had you as Beth. Aww. Uh, for myself, I chose Aunt March because <laughs> I, I just like talking shit and telling you guys how much you suck. I, I didn't know we were allowed to go outside of the, the four bottomless <laughs> yeah, she, little women. She's old, but she's not big, so whatever. That's fair. Uh, and then Jack, I, of course, had you as Joe because Ireland. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad, One of the yeah. great pleasures we didn't touch on in Little Women is hearing Saoirse Ronan's accent just slip <laughs> throughout the whole thing. And honestly, I thought it was endearing. I had no problems yeah. there. No issues. No issues. All right, guys. Uh, well, uh, where can we find you on Twitter, Jack? Uh, you can find me at Real Jack Eason, where I will be posting extensively about nothing. All right. Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, Letterboxd, Sean Glennis. Jake, how about you? I'm on everything at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Follow Wonderful. me, give me a shout. Yeah. I am also everywhere at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. And Myros isn't on the internet, but you can always tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine or send us an email, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Tell us why we're, why we're all pig-headed idiots. We'd love to hear it. And, uh, yeah, make sure you click the link in the description of this podcast. Go to iTunes. Give us a five-star review. And write something. Just write whatever. It doesn't really matter. Call Myros a fuckface. He'd love to hear it. Uh, trying to get our star rating up so that we can uh, improve our discoverability through the algorithm on iTunes. And that way more people can find us, more people can listen to us, and we can do more shit for you. And we will, of course... Be back next week with the rest of the Best Picture nominations. And Jake, the last word is is yours. Tally ho! Mm-hmm.